evangelist in Bristol, England, uh, or Ashley Downs, England, which is north of Bristol. And George Mueller had a great desire that came from the Lord to take care of orphans. He took care of hundreds and hundreds of children who didn't have any parents. And the Lord gave him a desire to take care of all these children. And he never, ever received a salary from a company or an institution. He believed that the God of the Bible, the God that saved him, would provide for his very needs. So he never mentioned to anyone the exact needs for himself personally, which he didn't really have any regard for himself. But he never talked to anyone about the financial needs of the hundreds of orphans. And so you would have breakfast one day, and there's no bread for the children to eat bread, right? There's no bread at the breakfast table. And George Mueller would get on his knees, and he would pray out to God, God, hear my prayer. These children need you. It's breakfast time, and these children have no bread. And then he would close and say, Amen. And it sounds weird, but within a few minutes, he would hear a, at the front door. And it was the local baker. And the baker would say, Mr. Mueller, I have some bread for you and your children. And then a week later, they would have no milk. And George Mueller would pray, Lord, it's breakfast time again, and these children have no milk. Lord, please provide. And then within a few minutes, it was the local farmer with fresh milk from the cows and he would provide gallons upon gallons of free milk to these orphans and so George Mueller depended upon God George Mueller believed that there was one true living God and his prayer life proved that so I would encourage any of you to read about George Mueller and his orphanages known as the Mueller homes God provided for him. And why did God provide for him? Because God is gracious. God is kind. There was a promise in the Bible, actually 1 Peter chapter 5, that says, cast all your anxieties upon who? Upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares. He cares for you. And that promise in 1 Peter chapter 5 was the promise that George Mueller would claim daily and it greatly calmed him to rest in the Lord, to wait upon the Lord. The Lord has never failed. The Lord has never failed to provide for his people. Amen? He relied completely on the Lord. We are in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54, with Pastor Vladimir. I'm grateful to God that he's reading it before you. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54. And you see the title in your bulletin. And the main point that I want to get across today is the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And I missed one word in that main point. The Lord is our God. This is very personal today. The Lord is our God, the God who created you. The God who showed you mercy and love and kindness and patience. At the right time, he allowed you to hear the truth of God's word in your ears. 
and it went through your mind and you were trying to process this gospel truth, this gospel word. And in God's kindness, God, by his Holy Spirit, convicted all of us of sin. And it resonated within our born-again hearts. And we believed unto salvation. We trusted in the one and only Savior. The Lord is our God. And so we will see this in Solomon's desires in today's text. There's three key desires from King Solomon. Number one, God does not abandon Israel. That's verse 57. Point number two, the world knows the greatness of God in verse 60. And point number three, Israel willingly follows God. We see that in verse 58, 59, and 61. Just a quick background, because it's been a while since we've been in 1 Kings. I love 1 Kings. I love 2 Kings. If there was a third king, I would love that as well. But just quickly, we see in chapter 5 of 1 Kings that there is now preparations for the building of the temple under Solomon's reign. By the time we get to chapter 6, the temple is built and it has taken seven years from start to finish to build this wonderful grand temple. By the time we get to chapter 7, now King Solomon transitions from building the temple for the Lord now to building his own kingly palace, which has actually taken double the time. It took 13 years to build King Solomon's palace. And now by the time we read chapter 8, remember, the palace of the king is built, the temple that's dedicated to the Lord is built, and now there's something very, very important, a holy piece of furniture that needs to be moved into the temple, and not just any part of the temple, but in the most holy place, the holy of holies, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the most holy place. And once the priests leave the temple, what happens next? The glory cloud comes down and rests upon this temple. And what does that mean? That the Lord our God approves of this temple. He is now with his people. God's holy presence is with God's people. And that's signified by that glory cloud. Being with God's people is very, very important. That's a, that is a major theme throughout the Bible. One of the questions in the Bible is, will God be with his people? He's promised to be with his people. Will he follow through? And we see a part of that promise fulfilled because that glory cloud has come down and is now in the temple and God is with his people. Now we're in verse 54. King Solomon has just finished praying and pleading before God. If you read the early part of chapter 8, King Solomon is praying to the Lord standing up. By the, by the time we get to verse 54, he stands up after his prayer. Obviously, it seems like this was a long prayer. He stands up. He's on bended knee. His hands are stretched out. He has a humble heart. He has the right posture. He's at the right place praying. Where is he praying? He's at the temple. Where is he at in the temple? He's at the altar. What is he doing? His arms are stretched out. His heart is bended before God. And his knee is bended before God, showing humility before the Lord. So he has the right, humble, submissive posture before God. And then in verse 55, 
King Solomon gives a benediction. A benediction is a statement or a prayer that blesses God's people. That's what a benediction is. We, that, we do that at the end of our service, right? Pastor Ed is usually the one who delivers it. And so we're grateful and we're praying to God that God would bless his people after hearing God's word. Now we jump into point number one. God does not abandon Israel. Verse 56, read with me. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. So Solomon blesses the Lord. King Solomon is blessing and praising the true king, the God of heaven. Why? Because God is true. God is faithful. God has fulfilled his promise. And one of those promises is that God would give his people rest. Rest. In the Old Testament, when you see the word rest, it's ceasing from any sort of physical labor. Usually that's the definition. Ceasing from physical labor. And we see this in Exodus chapter 20, commandment number 4. Commandment number 4. Remember the Sabbath to keep it what? Holy. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God had instituted a rhythm of work and rest. It's the six-in-one formula. Six days of work, one day of rest. Not that God needs physical rest. God does not have a physical body. But what God is doing is he's setting the rhythm of life. That we are, wor- we are to work unto the Lord and we are to rest physically. So there's a physical blessing in that. However, when we get to 1 Kings chapter 8, this type of rest that we see in verse 56 is a rest from enemies. It's a rest from war and warfare. It's a rest from fighting. If you've read the Bible, you're going to notice that there's been all sorts of calamity with God's people and the enemies of God's people. And now this type of rest is a rest from war, which God has promised. And we see this promise in Exodus 33:14. Exodus 33:14. God says to Moses, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. God commands Moses to tell the people, you've received the law from Mount Sinai, now it's time for you to depart from Mount Sinai and go into the land that I've given to you. Go into the promised land. But Moses has a major concern, and he asked the Lord, Lord, Will you go with us? If you don't go with us, it's no benefit to us to go. But we want to know, I want to know, will you be with us? And what does God say? My presence will go with you. My presence will be with you. See, what sets Israel, the nation of Israel, apart from all the other people groups 
at that time was the presence of God. It is the law of God that sets God's people apart, but it's also God's presence with his people. That's why Moses is concerned. Will you go with us or not? And so the Lord responds, my presence will be with you and I will give you rest. Here's another example of physical rest from enemies. We see that in Deuteronomy 12. And it says this in verse 10, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. During the wilderness wanderings, there was a lot of challenges, but there was no rest for God's people. They continued to wander and wander and wander and conflict upon conflict upon conflict. And now we're at the stage where Solomon's temple is built, and God promised his people that they would have physical rest from their enemies. In your Bible, your English Bible, that is, you should have all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord. When you see that in your English Bible, which it should be in your English Bible, we're talking about the personal name of God that he gives to his people. That's Yahweh or Yevah, depending on what context you want to use. But the Jews would never use this personal name of God. Why? Because the personal name of God was so holy and so sacred and so special and so set apart that they could never compel themselves to say Yahweh, so they would say Adonai. Adonai is another respectful title for the Lord. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Solomon, what is he saying? He's saying Yahweh is our personal God. He is the true and living God. And so Solomon desires that Israel's God be with Israel. As he was with his fathers or their ancestors in times past. That's Solomon's desire that God would never leave his people. That God's presence is always with God's people. The Bible's clear that God is faithful. God makes a promise, and he is the promise-keeping God. We see this in Joshua 21, talking about rest again from enemies and possessing the land, and that all of God's promises will come to fruition. It says this, in Joshua 21, 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. I've said this once. I'll say it a thousand times. Parents, we make promises to our children merely to satisfy them or pacify them for a moment in time. But it's a 50-50 chance that we'll actually come through on our promises. But when God makes a promise, it's a hundred out of a hundred. It's impossible to God. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to fail. It's impossible for God to not keep his promises. In other words, God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. And that's the point of this verse. All of these promises came to pass. In 1 Kings 
chapter 8 and verse 15, God is, again, faithful to his people and to his promise. And verse 15 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. Does God have a physical mouth? Does God have a physical hand? No. That's language so that we as finite creatures can understand the infinite one. That God has fulfilled everything he said he would do. We get it. We understand it. See, for the Jews, one of their greatest fears is that God would abandon his people. That God would disconnect himself from his people. And God does, by the way, if you read the Old Testament, for a time, separate himself from his people. Why? Because his people sin against the God who loved them and created them. But we're grateful that God doesn't abandon his people in totality. But their fear is, will God leave us and never come back? Will God abandon us? Because for the Jews and the nation of Israel, their identity is tied up directly to God. Their identity and who they worship and what they do is directly tied to God. And without the Lord, they understand without the Lord, they are not blessed. Without the Lord, without the presence of God amongst them, they are just like any other pagan, idol-worshiping people group in the world. They're just like the pagans of the land without the Lord. Notice what Solomon is not asking for. Solomon is not asking for, in this prayer, he's not asking for more money. He's not asking for more wisdom. He's not asking for more health. He's not asking for more wealth. He's not asking for an easy life. He's not asking for any of those things. Yet God in his kindness blessed him with many of those blessings. But King Solomon is not concerned about that. What King Solomon is asking for is this. Will God be with his people? And King Solomon is praying, God, you promised. You promised to be with your people. Please be with your people. Don't forget us. Be with us. Be true to your word and to your promise. Let me ask you this, dear Christian. Christian brother, Christian sister. Do you believe in the word of God? Do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe in the promises in the word of God? Where there's a promise that applies to you, you should claim that. And hold on to that deeply. And never let that promise go. Do you believe in the God who created you? Rather, let me ask you this. Do you believe in the God who makes promises and keeps promises? Do you believe that God will forsake you? I know there's Christians in here right now that have been beaten up by the world. They've had a long week. They're physically exhausted. You're physically exhausted. You're emotionally drained. You're mentally spent. You have nothing left in the tank and you feel like God is a million miles away. Don't believe that lie. God has promised to never leave or forsake his people. It doesn't matter what your mind thinks. It doesn't matter what your heart feels. It doesn't matter that your body is broken down and decaying and dying right before your own eyes. 
God has promised to be with His people. Believe that, dear Christian. Hope in that. And don't let that promise go. Remember, God cannot lie. There's many Christians that run around and say, God can do anything. God can do anything. That's not theologically accurate. God can do anything according to his goodwill and purposes. God cannot violate himself. He cannot violate his own nature. So when the Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness, what is God really saying? God is saying, don't lie. Why would God ever say, do not lie? It's because God cannot lie. So there's some things that God cannot do. He cannot violate himself. He cannot violate his holy nature. And so that should bring us great hope as Christians. That when we read the word of God, we can say God is true. God is faithful. God is with us. God will not lie. And he is the promise-keeping God. So our true rest, by the way, is not simply physical, but it's more than physical. Our true rest is spiritual. Our true rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately. In Colossians 2, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to the Lord. In this text in Colossians 2, it mentions the Sabbath or the Shabbat. That means to cease, to cease from work. What? To cease from work, if you're going to use the Exodus 20 context, to cease from physical work. But now Jesus says in Colossians 2, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2 that true rest, all of these things, these five things that were listed, ultimately point to Christ. Our rest is in the Lord. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to who? To Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, we see true spiritual rest in what Jesus Christ says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me, all who labor and are what? Heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest. Jesus is not talking about physical rest. Jesus says, I have rest that you are unaware of. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I have rest that I will give to you. That's ultimate rest. See, in this context, what was happening is the law of God was given to God's people as a help and an aid to God's people. But yet the scribes and the Pharisees of that time, they would take the law of God, something that is good, and twist it and add the oral traditions of men to it, and now create a whole new religion called legalism. And Jesus confronts that new religion, that legalistic mindset of me trying to work my way into an ultimate rest. 
Jesus says, no. I'm inviting you to rest, not in man-made tradition and man-made law. I'm inviting you to rest in me, in Jesus, in Jesus. Because see, to yoke yourself to the traditions of men is to yoke yourself to slavery. Because you will never know under those type of terms if you've said enough, done enough to be forgiven by God. You will never know if you hold to a legalistic mindset. And so what, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if you look at the law and you think that the law is the way to salvation for yourself, you under the yoke of slavery. There's only one person that can satisfy the law. His name is Jesus Christ. Therefore, believe in Jesus. He's the one that gives you true rest, not this man-made religion stuff, not the oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. Trust in Jesus. He's the only way of salvation to the Lord. The religion that we have in I want to be careful about using the word religion because it can mean many different things. But our religion, per se, is not really a religion. What we believe in is the way of salvation per the Bible, and that's through Jesus Christ. We're not trying to work our way into heaven. You can't. What could you offer God that he would accept it? so that you are now cleansed and forgiven of every single sin in your life. What could you offer him that he would gladly accept? The answer is nothing. Nothing. So when we think about rest, it's much more than physical. Old Testament rest in the Bible, in Exodus 20, when we read that account of the law given to God's people through Moses, that type of rest was rooted and based in creation, right? Because if you read Genesis, God says, right, six days was work and one day was what? Rest. So rest in that context is rooted in creation. When we fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a, another rest. There's another rest. And this is a rest of or from Egypt. Remember, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And they were to be redeemed by what? By God. But there was a special meal. What was that special meal? The Passover meal. And that Passover meal was not just any animal. It was a lamb, was it not? That lamb points to Jesus Christ. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's another type of rest, not rooted in creation, which is true, Exodus 20 and Genesis, but also there's a rest from the yoke of slavery in Egypt that's centered on Jesus Christ. See, Jesus gives your soul, my weary soul, our weary souls, true rest. 
There's no other rest that can compare to that rest. But you receive that rest, we receive that rest by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not your good works, it's not your good deeds. I just shared the gospel 48 hours ago with a dear friend. And the question is, to me, he said, Rolo, why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you have so much hope and trust in the Bible? Now, I said, I, I could have answered that a million different ways. There's many different ways to prove that the Bible's correct. But I, I got to the heart of the matter, and I, I said, it's the resurrection, my dear friend. If you remember what I said months ago, I tried to prove that Christianity was wrong. Why? So I could live in my sin. Because I knew that this house of cards falls apart at the resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. If you've never read it, you should read that today. Because if Christ is not raised from the dead, our hope is in vain. So, the resurrection is one way, and I think it's a major way, to prove that the Bible is true. And if, the, and if Jesus is raised from the dead, then the only way we can rest is by faith in Him. We hope in Him. We trust in Him. See, those of us in here today who are not Christians, please listen to me. If you're not a Christian, your soul is tired. Your soul is weary. Your soul is worn out. Why? Because you are right now carrying a weight that is so heavy that is absolutely killing you from the inside out. You are carrying a burden and a weight and guilt for your sins. And you're trying to figure out, why do I feel so bad? It's because of your sin. Because of your sin. Your sin has separated you from God. And now you feel the full force and weight of that upon your soul. And you're tired and worn out, and so you try to satisfy yourself. You try to renew your strength through drugs and alcohol and pornography and gambling addictions and kicking the dog and the cat and everything else in this world. And at the, the next day comes along and you feel the same exact way again. And you feel it all over again the next day and the next day and the next day. It's because your soul is heavy and worn out. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You don't have to carry those sins anymore. You don't have to carry that guilt and condemnation anymore. Jesus will give you rest. He will give you rest. But you've got to come to Jesus on Jesus' terms, not your terms. If you read verse 25 of that text, he's talking about children. That the children, the children come to me. And if you put that together in context, what is Jesus saying? Don't have a childish faith where you believe one day and the next day you don't believe. The next day you believe and then the next day you don't believe. No, Jesus is saying have a childlike faith. Believe. As a child who loves their father, loves their parent, a childlike faith, a simple faith, believe upon the Lord. And so God has given his one and only son, Jesus, those who have personal faith in him, 
have true rest. I know I'm belaboring the point, but it's important. You cannot come to Jesus in pride. You cannot come to Jesus in physical strength. You cannot come to Jesus in the prowess of your intellect. You come to Jesus as a child. And you believe upon him. And his yoke is easy. Why would Jesus say that? So Jesus says, I'll give you rest, but you got to take your, my yoke upon you. And to have a yoke upon an animal is to steer them and guide them and hold them to go a certain direction, right? But Jesus says, my yoke is easy. Why would he say that? His yoke is easy compared to man-made dead religion. It's easy compared to man-made legalism. So I want to encourage you non-Christians, quit carrying around this heavy burden. Be forgiven in Christ. Come to him, and he will give you rest for your weary, tired, worn-out, exhausted souls. But you've got to come to him on his terms, not yours. Point number two, the world knows the greatness of God. Look at verse 60. The world knows the greatness of God, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Why does King Solomon bless the Lord? He blesses the Lord because God is faithful. God is true. God cannot deny himself. And Solomon wants Israel to honor the Lord. How is, how are, how is Israel supposed to honor the Lord? They're to obey the Lord. They're to obey the Lord. And so Solomon prays that the world may know that the Lord is God. That the Lord is God. What is Solomon actually saying? Solomon is worried and concerned about the universal glory of God on a global scale. We're talking about the glory of God worldwide. And King Solomon talks about this and prays about this. And why would the universal glory of God be a concern for him? The answer is in the verse. The Lord is God. Why? Because there is no other God. That's the basis. That's the basis. There is no other God. Exodus 20, verse 3. This is the first commandment. You shall have what? You shall have no other gods before me. Before me literally means before my face or in my presence. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Exodus 20, verse 3. The Lord God is sovereign. He is the creator. He created you, and he created me. He created Israel. He claims Israel as his own. And so he says, there are no other gods. You shall have no other gods. I claimed you. You belong to me. You don't belong to another person or entity or deity. But as the old saying is, commandment number one leads to commandment number two. This is verse 4 and 5 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, is a, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. When you take the word jealous and apply it to mankind, there's a negative connotation there. In other words, do not take pleasure in another man or woman's property. In other words, be content with what you got. Be content with what you have. Do not be jealous. So that's the word jealous as it, as it applies to us, humanity. But when we take that same word jealous and apply it to God, that has a whole different meaning. It has a whole different meaning. God is absolutely jealous for his own glory, his own reputation, and his own namesake. In other words, God created us, God saved us, God claimed us through the blood of his son, and in this context, he claims Israel. And so God has the right, he has the absolute right to demand exclusive loyalty unto himself. That's what it means to be jealous. God is fiercely protective of his holy name. For God's people to worship a false god, a dead god, is a slap in the face of the ultimate type and kind. It's dishonoring to the Lord. That's why God's people recites in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, what? The Lord our God, the Lord is what? Multiple? No. One. The Lord is one. Biblical Christianity is monotheistic, not polytheistic. The Bible actually preaches against and denounces polytheism or multiple gods. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The, the devout Jew would recite this every single day. He would recite it to his spouse and recite it to his kids and recite it to his grandkids. There is no other God but the true living God. We've read this recently, James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The context is what? Faith without works is dead. And then James says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. Even the demons believe in monotheism. So to say intellectually, I believe God is one. I believe God exists. I'm not an atheist. But there's no salvation for demons. See, salvation per the Bible is more, much more than intellectualism. You can agree with all the facts of the Bible. God is one. God is real. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. God knows all things. You can agree to all those biblical facts, but do you have a personal reliance, a personal trust upon the Savior, Jesus Christ? That's the question. If you don't, then your theology is no better than a demon. What are you going to do at the end of your life? When you say, I believe in God, demons say that. The Mormon church down the street says that. 
The Jehovah's Witness down the street believes that. Your unsaved, agnostic neighbor says, I'm spiritual, I believe in that. What are you going to do? I hope as Bible-believing Christians, we hold to the fact, the biblical fact, and not just the fact, in our hearts, we truly claim and believe and trust that there is no other God, that the Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. Do you believe that? Do you personally believe in that? Or is there any sort of contradiction in your profession versus your life? Is there a contradiction? Because if you really believe that the Lord is one, you really believe that there are no other gods but the true and living God, that biblical truth will revolutionize the way you live and talk and work and marriage and family and parenting and how you read the Bible. If we believe this, this changes our entire mindset. If we're to be honest with ourselves, there are other false gods, deities in our hearts that we're unwilling to acknowledge and deal with. Ask someone that you truly depend on, that you trust, somebody who's close to you, ask them, are there any idols in my heart that I'm unaware of? And let them have the freedom to speak openly to you. Because if they're honest and they love you, they're going to tell you there are idols in your heart. There's idols in my heart. And we need to jettison and reject all false religions and false gods and rededicate ourselves to the Lord. But when we think of what King Solomon is doing here, he's absolutely concerned about the glory of God universally. I wonder if we think about that. Are we concerned about the glory of God worldwide? We should be. We must be. Did we not send out missionary family from our church? We need to continue to pray for them, that God would sustain them physically, but more than that, spiritually. Did we not plant a church in the height of the first year of COVID? Should we not pray that God would send out more missionaries and more church planners and more evangelists? Do we not want all the peoples of the earth to know the one and true living God? You understand what I'm saying. We say that there is one God. But when was the last time we prayed for God's will to be done in the world? Is it just Sundays? If it is, then that's not satisfactory. We need to be consumed with the glory of God globally. We need to be obsessed with the glory of God globally. We need to lose sleep at night knowing that there are people groups in the world who do not have the Bible in their own language, that they're born and raised in a dead religion, and when they die, they're going straight to hell. And yet, we can go to our personal libraries 
and pull out 10 different English versions of the same Bible. And we're not concerned about it. We're not concerned about sharing the gospel with others. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. As a church, we need to be focused on what God has called us to do. We must know what we believe, why we believe it, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and disciple others and send out church planters and evangelists and missionaries. Just because we're a small church doesn't mean we give up. We need to be focused on what God has called us to do. That includes our parenting. That, that includes our work lives and our careers. And so Solomon prays that God would not abandon his people, and we praise God that he hasn't. Solomon prays that the world would know the greatness of God. And now point three, Israel willingly follows God. Verse 58, read with me. That he, referring to God, may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Solomon prays a very heartfelt prayer, and he's concerned for God's people. And he's praying that God would incline their hearts. In the Bible, the heart refers to several things. But the heart, many times, is the conscience. That the conscience would know right from wrong. That they would avoid the wrong and the evil. And that they would obey the right and the good and honor God. But also, the heart is the central part of a person. It's where their thoughts come into play. It's their volition. It's their action. It's their emotions. It's all of that in one. Tied to the conscience. And King Solomon is praying that the Lord would literally bend the hearts or incline the conscience. But literally it's saying, bend the heart of God's people to what? To honor God. To honor God. So Solomon desires that God would change the heart of his people and continually change the heart of God's people. We should not think that God changed our heart one time. If we're going to use a proof text, John chapter 3, regeneration by the aid of the Holy Spirit, say, okay, God has changed our heart. That is true. That's a biblical fact. That's a theological fact. But we need to pray that God would continue to change our hearts, that we would walk in holiness and love the Lord our God. Why? Because we are prone to wander, as the hymnal writer states. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Every day you wake up as a Christian, there's a battle that's raging within your heart. Will I honor Christ, or will I give in to my flesh and temptation? Solomon is praying that God's people would walk what is that? Behavior that's conformed to God's word. That God's people would keep what? Keep God's law and statutes and obey. That's what it means 
You know, we live in a culture where many Christians will say, the way that you live for God is that you love God. Right? The Bible does say, Pastor Ola, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, those are the, those are the two commandments that summarize God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. But what we don't say to our children, parents, you're, you're going to get this, right? When you say to your child, child, I want you to honor me, but you give them no details. You never train them, equip them, help them, help them to understand how to honor you. You just say, child, honor me. Child, love me. But you never give them any real details on how to do that, any clear instruction. God does so. God is very clear on how we're to honor him. There are many people who say, well, the law doesn't apply to us today. Don't believe those people. Thou shalt not murder. Oh, Jesus saved us. Now thou shalt not murder Murder doesn't apply anymore. No, that still applies. Don't take innocent life. So this, if you think about it, God has told us to honor him, but he doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us exactly how. To obey his commandments, his statutes, his regulations, his word. That's the actual how, and when we do that, that shows our obedience and love to God. It's not nebulous, it's not general. This is not about law-keeping for the sake of law-keeping. Don't, don't walk away today thinking, Pastor Rolo said, in order for you to be forgiven and go to heaven, you obey all Ten Commandments. I did not say that. But if you are born again, you obey the Ten Commandments because you know it honors God. It honors God. So this is all about honoring God. God has revealed in his law who he is and what he requires of you. And then in verse 59, let me just quickly go through this. He says, let these words of mine. What is Solomon referring to? He's referring to his entire prayer. His entire prayer. It's this prayer of dedication. But really, this should be a prayer, Solomon's prayer of forgiveness. Let me give you one example. I don't have time to go into all of this. But turn to verse 33. 33 of the same chapter, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 33. Remember, Solomon is praying to the Lord, and this is what he says in verse 33. When your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against who? Sinned against you. And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, talking about the temple, then here in heaven, and what? Forgive. Forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. If you read that whole prayer, Solomon is saying, Lord, when your people sin, when your people sin, when your people sin, when your people sin, and they turn from their sin and they pray to you in this place, Forgive, O oh God. Forgive, O oh Lord. Forgive, O oh King. Solomon knows that God's people need God's help. Because God's people are prone to wander. God's people are going to sin. And Solomon, being the wisest king in the Old Testament, knows 
that this is going to happen. And this is Solomon's daily prayer. God, forgive your people. These words that I have said to you, please don't forget us. Don't take your presence from us. Maintain our request. Hear our cause. Sustain us by your word and by your grace to keep your commandments and honor you. Verse 61 says, Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments as at this day. What's interesting about this verse is we would all agree that we are to completely, wholeheartedly be devoted to the Lord. But if you have to ask the question, how? How are we supposed to do that, God's people? It's in the second half of the verse. Walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments. That's how you to do it. Not to gain salvation, not to be forgiven by God, no. It's to honor him. It's to love him. It's to obey him. God's word, God's law is not a burden to God's people who understand God's law rightly and biblically. And so Solomon ends this prayer by charging the people, Lord, make these people's hearts wholly devoted to you. And he charges the people with that. That the Lord their God would always be the Lord their God by obeying God's word. It's very clear how they're supposed to do this. So the Lord or the law is good. The law is good if one uses it wisely. Wisely. There's a story of an atheist having a conversation with a Christian. And the atheist chastises the Christian. The atheist says, I'm going to prove to you, dear Christian, that God does not exist. God, kill me right now. That was his request to God in front of the Christian. God, kill me right now. And he looks to the Christian, look, I'm still alive. I'm not dead. Your God does not exist. And the Christian says, no, 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 my dear friend. You've proven nothing except that God is gracious to wicked sinners like you. God is patient with you. God is long-suffering with you. And so we praise God. As Christians, God has been long-suffering towards us. God has been kind with us. God has been merciful with us. How do we know? He hasn't abandoned you or me. He's given you Christ. And when Christ ascended upon the throne 40 days after his resurrection, what did Jesus say? When I leave, I will give you another. Another Jesus? No. I'm going to give you the comforter and the helper. If I don't leave, he's not going to come. So I'm going to leave, and the Holy Spirit, the third person, God of very God, is going to be not simply with you, but he's going to be among you and in you and fill you. And so he doesn't abandon us. God is faithful. We must continue to pray like Solomon. Lord, incline our hearts to you. This regenerated heart still is tempted and attracted to sins that you know about. Lord, help us. Help us, O oh God, to share the gospel, 
to make the universal glory of God to be shed abroad. Also, we must continue to pray that the Lord would soften us, soften our hearts that we would actually obey his law and not look at it, look at it as a burden, but as a delight. Because God has told us exactly, not in the dark, but he's revealed to us how we are to honor him in his word. Sermon in a sentence. Christians are to be completely devoted to the Lord. And the best way to accomplish this is to study and apply his written word for our benefit and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, O God, that you hear us because of Christ. We heard a word that comes from you and you alone. And we admit, O God, that our hearts are prone to wander that our hearts are tempted by things of this world that we should not be tempted by, and it attracts us and it captivates us. And Lord, we ask you to help us and forgive us. Lord, be with us now. You promised to never leave us or forsake us, and we're grateful for that. So be with us now as we continue to worship your great name and be with us in our marriages and our families as we work in the world. Help us to point others to you. Help us to be obsessed by the glory of your great name. In Christ we pray. Amen.